is depression funny? Depression, I have found, is even funnier than I thought because I'm talking about it my own from a very specific place and I'm making audiences of strangers laugh about it, which means that more and more people are dealing with these feelings than want to admit. Something wrong with me, I've got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. The way the show works, I interview some of the top names in comedy, some of the funniest and most interesting people around, all of whom have dealt personally with clinical depression. We hear about their lives, what has or has not worked in fighting the disease, and we have a few laughs. That makes us feel more connected with our fellow humans, makes us feel more understood, and smashes away at the stupid stigma around mental illness in general. I'm not a doctor. There will be no medical advice given. But maybe we'll learn something from each other. And here's our guest for this episode. I'm Baron Vaughn, and I'm in Los Angeles, California. Did you get that name? My name's Baron Vaughn. I don't talk about it that much because it's fucking incredible. (laughs) I have a rhythmically perfect name. I have the kind of name that makes you think I'll show up if you say it three times into a mirror. That's the kind of name I have. But people are always like, Baron Von, what? <laughs> because it's an incomplete rhythm. It's a, it's a rhythm that people recognize, but there's a missing piece to pretty much everyone. That's what my mom was thinking about, rhythm. She wasn't thinking about history. She was just thinking about musicality. And I always wanted my name to be something like so unmistakably black, you know, so there's a precedent before I get there. Because Baron Vaughn, you don't know that person's black. Like, if you saw that at the top of a job resume, it'd be like, oh, my God, Baron Vaughn. Hey, everyone, uh, apparently the king of lollipops is on his way. Yeah. (laughs) I heard if you smell freshly showered, he'll give you a crisp $2 bill. (laughs) But I always wanted my name to be something like so black, like Jamal Malik Jenkins. Just so there's a precedent, like, oh, my God, Jamal Malik Jenkins. Uh, Hey, everyone, uh, basketball's getting dunked at noon. And then I walk in and somehow bring up, you know, a comparison between Shakespeare and black playwright August Wilson. And they go, oh, shit, I'm racist. I get it now. And then I'm changing the world one Subway sandwich shop at a time. That's from Baron Vaughn's 2016 album, Black Existential Crisis. Baron Vaughn is a stand-up comedian and actor. He's a regular on the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. He's been on Girls, various Law and Orders laws and order. And he's the voice of Tom Servo in the upcoming reboot of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Barron's story begins in a place not widely known for being a comedy hotspot. This is in a little town called Tucumcari, New Mexico, nor- uh, northeast New Mexico, a place um, people have been through, um, <laughs> not necessarily lived in, but it is on Route 66, the very famous uh, American road, America's Main Street, they call it, uh, which was the actual Main Street of Tucumcari, New Mexico as well, uh, was Route 66. That's where Baron grew up. He was initially raised by his great-grandparents, and that's where comedy started. They um, were the people that I loved and the people I looked up to. And, of course, there were these TV shows that they would watch that made them laugh. Um, a handful of different sitcoms, you know, because at the end of the 
um, 70s, you know, early 80s, there was this um, glut of sitcoms that were featuring black people um, and telling stories like that, like, you know, like the Jeffersons or Good Times or Amen or 227. And so they watched those shows. Yes, exactly. Um, Sanford and Son, What's Happening, Gimme a Break, starring Nell Carter. Um, So they loved those shows, and they were really funny to them, and I would watch them. And then also they used to watch Nick at Night, and um, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, But Nickelodeon, I think it was after 5 or 6 p.m., stopped being cartoons and and, uh, TV shows for children and started being old black and white sitcoms from usually the 50s and 60s, and I would watch those as well. I'm talking stuff like Dobie Gillis, uh, Patty Duke, um, Mr. Ed, uh, Make Room for Daddy, um, or stuff like that. And um, I watched a lot of that TV, but that the first time I saw Sammy Davis Jr. on Patty Duke, I had to react the exact same way that black people in the 60s reacted when I was like, what? We're on TV. We made it. Um, and then to, to accentuate those shows, I guess they would also show the original five years of Saturday Night Live, um, SCTV and Laugh-In and the Carol Burnett show. So I watched all of that stuff and was soaking it in and, uh, observed the laughter from my my parental figures, and I was like, oh, I can get them to do that based on based on what I've seen, based on the research I've done with all these TV shows. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can recreate a situation in which they will laugh. Let me try. So that's kind of when I saw that I had some sort of power, I want to say, some power, some value, is that I could make them laugh. Um, as hard uh, as all the TV shows that they were watching and loved. Barron moved with his mom to Las Vegas when he was around eight, and he lived there with his mom, grandmother, and eventually a stepfather. It wasn't the most nurturing environment. I grew up um, in a family that was keeping a lot of different secrets and um, a lot of different fear and shame and stuff. People just weren't talking about things. And my mother, um, you know, God bless her heart, when I was in high school, was an addict. So um, you don't become an addict unless you have some sort of deep, deep pain that you are trying to um, medicate. Um, And so this is a person that was raising me. So the tools I had of understanding of of dealing with people, um, you know, because your parents essentially, you know, just like you speak English, I speak English. Like when we were children, we didn't speak any language and we, we copied what we saw our parents do until um, they understood us. And it's the same for emotionality. So it's like all of our emotional languages came from our parents. So whatever they're blocked on, whatever they're stuck on, we have it as well. And that is something that takes a long time to become aware of to be able to work on. So I was not aware. I was completely unaware of those things, of those feelings. And, um, but, you know, being a child of an addict is, a you know, a lot of times a surefire way to have some sort of anxiety or depression when you get older. Um, because I had those things because I was, you know, internalizing things or trying to disconnect from certain things and would sit in this place of feeling like um, 
deserved punishment, I guess you could say. Like, uh, things suck and I deserve it to be that way. Why did you um, deserve it? That's just a deep-seated shame or, you know, self-hatred or self-loathing, you know. Um, so I know now that that's not true, but, you know, when you're a child and you get treated— because you're, you're a, a child can't compartmentalize. You know, when you become an adult and someone treats you a certain way, you go, oh, that's their stuff. That's not has nothing to do with me. But when you're a child, you don't know that, especially if it's someone you love. It's your mom. It's your dad. You know, it's just it's a sibling. You go, well, I must deserve this in some way. Like I must have done something to um, to elicit this behavior, you know, not as articulately as that, you know, because uh, I probably was saying elicit when I was seven. <laughs> like, I must have done something to elicit this behavior. <laughs> There's hmm. a preponderance of evidence that... Uh... Yes, they have a propensity for aversion. <laughs> Here's Barron on his 2011 album, Raised by Cable. I grew up in a, in, a, in a neighborhood where people had knives and guns, and I speak like this. I'll just throw out the word perspicacity if I feel it. So my, my plan was like, if I'm funny, I won't get killed. And I'm here today because that worked. <laughs> You know, because it was like, motherfucker, I will shoot you until you are stabbed. <laughs> and then I would be like, why would you ever want to shoot me? Scoot, deep, deep, do, 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 do. Skeet, skeet, do, 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 do. <laughs> You're right, the world needs clowns. <laughs> I especially enjoy your elbows while scatting routine. Very cerebral. <laughs> makes me think maybe it's not you I'm angry at. Perhaps what I'm angry at is systematic institutional failure. But since that's more of an ideology rather than something with a face that I can blame, my anger pours out into everyone and everything around me, which today happens to be you. And I'm thinking maybe instead of shooting motherfuckers and putting them in the ground, I should make a documentary to remember those that I've lost. Baron says he was a nerdy kid who really wanted to be liked. So he was always doing funny voices and comedy bits, which sometimes works for kids and often doesn't. He didn't fit in with the kids in his neighborhood, and he was black, which added an additional layer of otherness. At home, there was pain, addiction, abuse. So life at home was predictable and dangerous. Life outside was unpredictable and dangerous. You know, when I was a kid, I... I apologized a lot. I said I'm sorry a lot. I, I, I hung my head in shame, um, possibly because I was being shamed a lot. So I just decided to stay in that place. Why were you being to, shamed? Um, because I existed. <laughs> you know, because I was around. This was shaming and, at home that you were getting? Yes. Yes. And, um, and that school as well, you know, again, like this is, uh, you know, there are, there are deeper, deeper implications because it, it, I kind of, I think a lot about how these, um, these huge issues, like the issue of racism, like the, you know, like they, how that becomes domesticized in that you have a giant group of people saying you, everyone who looks this way, you don't matter. You, how you look is wrong. How you talk is wrong. How you act is wrong. What you believe is wrong. And if you say that to a, a huge group of people, um, it doesn't just get dissipated over the group. Every single person internalizes it in some sort of way. And it becomes a thing that they have to deal with for the rest of their lives, whether they want to or not. So sure. At school, I was being treated like I was, um, 
hyper or um, disruptive. You know, I think if if uh, the word is precocious, the word is imaginative, but those things were being um, discouraged, you know, by some teachers. Um, of course, I think there are a lot of teachers who encouraged me, which is why I am who I am today, you know, decided to become a professional artist because I had teachers, you know, whose voices um, cut through the 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 chorus of saying, no, 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 don't listen to all those people. You you actually have some gifts and you actually should explore your imagination and you should explore these things. So just listen to me. <laughs> Trust me, you're going to be OK and you should learn how to figure that out. And so teachers like that who helped me in my life, you know, are, like I said, like the reasons I am who I am. But then having um, the majority of people or at least perceiving the majority of people to be like, we don't approve of you. And then going home and then having my family be like, I also don't approve of you. Um, so I was just kind of like, all right, well, let me just sit. I've been I've been shamed, you know, and and, you know, that makes you hang your head. It makes you, you know, your your chest cave in. It makes you kind of hunch over in this body of, you know, you, you know, of tears, if you will. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're crying. It just means that you that body is the place that you are most comfortable because it's the place that you're being sent to all the time. So I just started to accept that as a fact of my life. And let me just stay here. If, if everyone's going to put me here, let me just stay here so they don't have to. Um, and I would say I'm sorry for things that weren't my fault. It just felt like I was always apologizing for things. He graduates from a performing arts high school in Vegas, goes to Boston University, and starts doing stand-up. Small part in a Broadway show soon after, and more stand-up. Enough stand-up and commercial acting work that he can quit his day job at a law firm, and then he's a professional performer, far away from the environment he grew up in, which gave Barron a chance to try to figure out what the hell happened in those early years. So did you feel like you weren't taken care of as a kid? Like, Because that with addiction, that often follows, that the, that the kid grows up, feels like, well, no one else is taking care of me. I got to take care of myself. And then the, the, the walls go up and, and it becomes a very lonely place. How about this? How about I conflated love and anger? Ooh. Because that's what was happening for my mother. What does that mean? It means that because of what was happening to her, she had a lot of anger and she had a lot of resentment. But at the same time, I am her flesh and blood. I'm her son. So she loves me. But her love was always tinged with this resentment or anger of the situation we were in. So when she gave me affection, it had that stuff embedded in it. And so I, as a, as a straight man especially, because, you know, I become romantically involved with women. So when women af have affection to me... I'm projecting my mother. I'm like, they must be angry at me in some way because they love me. Um, or if they're angry at me, it must mean that they care. So care and anger were the same thing. And so I wanted to be away from that. So I was scared of people caring about me. Yeah, because the anger was that, sure to follow. Exactly. And, it, and, I, and somehow I'm going to become a disappointment to them. I'm going to let them down in some sort of way. There's nothing I can do that's going to make them happy because... If they if they like me, they must be unhappy in some sort of way. So this is all the projection that I was doing. So, of course, it made me want to push people away. It made me not want to let people in too much because because all that fear and all that stuff. Wow. How long did that take you to unpack? Because that's that's some 
graduate-level stuff <laughs> to, to <laughs> figure that out about your own brain. These are, these are things that, like, in the last couple of years, I've really started to understand, you know, and I can, uh, because of a lot of different work that I've done, like going to therapy, because going to therapy is, is I've, I've been doing it for about three years now. Uh, again, something I was like, that thing for white people, white people, go to therapy. Because I do have a joke in my act where I talk about how I'm going to therapy and I'm, do, I'm doing all the things they told black people I could not do in middle school. Going to therapy, love it. Eating blueberries, delicious. Um, skiing still seems dangerous, but I am on my way. So Brunch. Yeah, well, brunch, I've, always, I've, been, all, I've been on brunch. I've been yeah. on brunch. Okay. How did Baron Vaughn get to therapy? We pick up the timeline in 2011. He's around 30 years old, and he gets, as they say in show business, his big break. I was um, shooting a TV show, um, a dearly canceled TV show called Fairly Legal on the USA Network, uh, who ironically shoots most of their shows in Canada. So I <laughs> had to move to Vancouver for a little bit to um, to live, basically. You know, um, I was not based in L.A. yet. I had just moved out of New York. My plan was I'll move to L.A. because it's the same time zone as Vancouver, blah, 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 yakety schmackety. But I hadn't yet planted any roots. Like, I, I basically drove from New York to Los Angeles, left all my stuff in storage, and then took a plane to Vancouver and just camped out there. Now, all the other cast members that were in the show were married. So... When they didn't have to be filming, they would come down to Los Angeles because they missed their significant other or their significant other had flown to Canada to hang out with them in Canada. But me, I was just sitting there in Canada. I'd be off for two weeks sitting by myself, completely disconnected from everyone I knew uh, because whoever is regulating the Internet in Canada said, we want it slow, but twice the cost. <laughs> um, and I was getting crazy charges like roaming charges on my phone because I was getting like $700 phone bills multiple months in a row and it just made me scared to be on my phone made me scared to be on the internet so I was just sitting by myself in an apartment a lot without any communication with people and um was do now I see I, the, the behaviors I was I was engaging in that's just textbook depression like I would not get out of bed for days days. Just, I'd wake up, I'd get on my computer because it was the only way that I could connect to people. And then before I knew it, it was 7 p.m. And I was like, whoa, well, I, I should get up. And then I'd get up and be dark outside and be like, ah, there's no point. And then I'd just stay in bed <laughs> for multiple days. And then I was subsisting on a diet of Cheerios, nothing but Cheerios, because there was a grocery store that was probably a two-block walk that at some point I decided was too far, it was not enough, it was not important enough for me to make that walk. That walk is harder than having no food. So I was just eating Cheerios until I was out, and then I would go and finally get a bunch of things and then run out of food and then eat Cheerios. Uh, so basically I just did that pattern. Um, Never had anything for myself in there. Uh, there were a lot of restaurants that were around. Again, downhill and uphill walk, and I'm like, not too hard. Um, then I was I was bathing with, like, I'd be out of soap and toiletries and stuff, and then I would just like, oh, what's in here? Oh, there's dish soap. So I would just be bathing in Dawn. That basically was what I would did for weeks on end. I would stay in bed, eating nothing but Cheerios, bathing in Dawn dish soap, and uh, and just going back to bed. 
That would basically be it. We reached out to reps from Cheerios to see if they would recommend an all-Cheerio diet. They opted not to participate. A similar invitation to Dawn regarding the wisdom of a Dawn-based hygiene protocol met with a lack of enthusiasm as well. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, no, those are bad ideas. Coming up, coming to terms with Clinny D. I'm going to take a minute right here to tell you about our sponsor, which is neither Cheerios nor Dawn. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We have a lot of laughs on this show. It's a good way to kind of tackle the subject and deal with it. Uh, It's a way of maybe knocking down the power of depression a little bit, but at the same time, this is a serious disease. It's something we need to take seriously, and it's something that you need to take seriously if it exists in your life, whether it's you or someone around you. The good news, everyone can get help. You can talk to people, talk to your loved ones. You can talk to your friends. And some of those conversations can be a bit awkward. MakeItOK.org is full of information you can use, tools you can use, conversation starters, ways to bridge that conversational gap that you might run into that gets a little awkward. You can find information there to get that going. Don't go it alone. Don't let stigma win. Back to Baron Vaughn. Eating and breathing have become unexpectedly dangerous in my life. I'm actually going to stop calling my allergies that. That's a wimpy name for something that might kill you out of nowhere. So I'm now going to call my allergies my police, exactly, because they might erase my existence and people will react the same way. Why'd you go outside that day? You guys know what I mean? Exact same disregard for human life. Okay, some of you with me. Some of you feel weird about race and that's fine because that's how I woke up. This morning and every single morning I've woken up. Just, what? Black again? Hope I make it. The police are out and it's already skin 30. I'm a contestant on Will This Get Me Killed? Anyway, guys. um... That's Baron appearing on the live comedy mashup program, The Super Serious Show. When last we left Baron, he was in his Vancouver apartment alone for days on end, eating nothing but Cheerios and bathing in Dawn. You know, when you're truly in the throes of depression, having a a really bad stretch, it's hard to see it for what it is because you're right in the middle of it. You don't have the bird's eye view. And it almost starts to feel normal because it's what your body and mind want to do. So during this this period, did you – how conscious were you of the thought that, oh, why didn't I – you know, I'm on a TV show. I, you're probably making some money. Why don't I go out and get myself a nice meal? Why don't I call the, the phone company and get an international plan and, and get that going? Like, were you aware that there's a barrier between me and doing that? Or did it just seem that nobody could do these things that, that you would think of? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't thinking of doing those things because it, it's this... You know, the anxiety is also part of depression. So then there's this constant um, fear, is the only way to say it, of doing things or doing things wrong or just, it's just that, also that, that motivation, you know, the, the, the fire that gets you out of bed. I wasn't feeling it. Like it was just, I didn't feel compelled. It wasn't important enough to me to, 
um, to make those calls. Plus, I didn't even know that those were things that could happen. Um, I mean, if I would have sat there and thought about how to solve this problem for five seconds, I probably would have figured it out. But I was so obsessed with just like, ah, oh, things suck. Just uh, there's no way to change it. I just have to accept that this is how it is. And it was it was honestly it was a friend of mine, uh, actually a woman I was dating at the time. Um, who was living in New York and we were on the phone and I was basically describing to her all of these feelings because I didn't understand that I I basically conflated depression and sadness. So it was like, because I've been sad, something happened that made me really sad and then that turned into depression, but I didn't feel sad. I, there wasn't this active feeling of sadness. It was just a malaise, like a general like white noise to my existence. Couldn't feel anything. Exactly, like a, a numbness. And um, a nothing, just kind of like, ugh. And I was trying to describe it to her, uh, and she was like, I think you're depressed. And I, it was like, a, of course, a light bulb went off. I'm like, what, is that what this is? Oh, my, I just thought the world was heavy, and uh, no one was sharing the weight. Okay, this is, the, oh, interesting. There are a lot of different reactions that people have when receiving a diagnosis of what looks to be a chronic disease. Lots of folks are devastated. Some go into denial. But I've noticed with depression, a lot of times there's a sense of relief. This thing has a name. There are ways to address it. Upon finding out he was depressed, Baron was kind of psyched. It honestly helped immensely because I was like, oh, I'm depressed. And it made me just do a couple of different things that helped me like immensely. Well, like I said before, like I would be sitting in bed and I had my computer there because my computer, the Wi-Fi in that place I was staying was my only connection to the outside world. So I would wake up and I'd want to get on my computer and start instant messaging and emailing and looking at Twitter and Facebook to connect with people. And I would wake up in bed, put my laptop in my, my lap and just be there all day. So what I started doing, simple thing, I put my laptop in the living room. So every time I woke up, I had to get out of bed to even go to my laptop. And then I got out of bed, and that was all I really needed to do was get out of bed. Get that hurdle. So I'd get out of bed. I'd see that the sun was out. I'd be on my laptop, and I'd go, well, I'm up. I might as well take a shower, and then I'd shower. Well, I showered. I might as well go outside, and then I'd go outside. Then I'd find things to do. I'd be out in the sunlight by myself as opposed to inside in the dark and the shadow and the cold by myself. Um, and that simple adjustment um, basically changed a lot of things for me. It helped me get through the, the rest of the time I was in Vancouver, definitely. And it worked beyond Vancouver, too. Baron Vaughn did something that you might want to keep in mind. He started to apply imagination and see these impairments, these mental illnesses, as tools. You know, and some people say this about depression and anxiety, which, of course, are, are siblings, I would say. Um, depression is is being stuck in things that have happened, the past. Um, things that have been done to you, have been said to you, you, the ways you've been treated. So pouring, you know, they say that some people say that depression is, is constantly pouring over the past. Uh, and some people would say that anxiety is constantly pouring over the future. You know, if I do this, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? Sometimes I say that anxiety to a creative person um, is your creativity. Anxiety is your creativity that you've turned into a weapon to punish yourself. Because you can because constantly imagine new outcomes. 
all and if you put all that in a script, people would be like, that's a hell of a story. But instead, <laughs> we're sitting there in bed going, but if I do this, then this will happen. If I do this, this will happen and not getting out of bed because of the, the fear of what might happen, right? We're writing the bleakest movie treatments possible over and over <laughs> again. Well, I think that's what every movie is. You know, every movie is is somebody trying to escape a situation that they were in, whether it be um, an emotional situation, whether it be a romantic situation, whether it be a job, you know, whether it be I got to assassinate this person over here. You know, like if it's a, even a spy drama is like the world is, you know, scary. Yeah. Fix it, James Bond. <laughs> We've talked about stigma before on this program and how it sucks real bad. You have a disease and depression that already makes you want to retreat from the world. And you have a world that gives you every reason to do so. We're horrible about depression. It's shamed and laughed at. It's tied up in fear and ignorance and a million cliches about straight jackets and padded rooms and all that nonsense. We use the vocabulary of mental illness to describe things that are not mental illness. Oh, that guy's a psycho. Oh, you're just being paranoid. I have total OCD about my pencils. And when we do that, we diminish those words. We steal and crush that legit vocabulary. Baron Vaughn had to overcome a couple different layers of stigma. Black people, at least not where I grew up or the time that I grew up, were not being um, told, essentially, about depression. It wasn't something that we, or at least myself, I can't speak for all black people, but I feel like, in general, the black community back then was not in touch with that kind of stuff, especially a small-town church community like the one that I grew up in. You know, you should probably pray on that was the answer to every question, as opposed to perhaps I should get some therapy, perhaps I should, you know, see about some sort of medication or get a diagnosis or stuff like that. It's just not part of the language that we're using to communicate um, our emotions. So mental health, stuff like that, was not a part of of what was our world. And in fact, when I started thinking about depression and anxiety and all those feelings, like I didn't see how much racial baggage I had uh, wrapped around those different things because I was like, depression, you mean the thing that white people do? Like I, that's where I went and I didn't even know I thought that until I was thinking about it. So I saw depression as something that was for the, um, uh, for the well-off, I guess you could say, that you have the time to sit there and become depressed. It's a thing that you get to if you're inactive, which is, of course, a misunderstanding. Barron said oppression in the black community has been more of a rallying point than depression. Well, we recognize oppression. Oppression is, is something that we experience. Yeah. It's a, it's a very visceral feeling. And it's something that can connect you to others, you know, because it's like you're being oppressed. I'm being oppressed. OK, cool. We understand each other. But depression is a whole different thing. Now, I think that oppression can play into depression because, again, like if you if you accept the premise that depression is pouring over the past, then how you have been treated in the past is always going to play a role of how you feel and about your depression in the present moment. So when you are a person of color and you are treated a certain way, because you inside your own body, you don't see yourself as, I mean, this is something that, um, you know, to get, get, get to some African-American studies now, um, that W.E.B. Du Bois, he called the double consciousness in that you are a, a black person and you are living your life through your own eyes. 
seeing the world that way. But you also have to step outside of that and think about how others see you, what others are projecting onto you. And that also figures into your daily stuff. Like I walk into a store, I'm just the person who wants a candy bar. But then I can see that there are people behind the counter that are looking at me extra close. So I have to suddenly become conscious of, okay, what do they think I'm trying to do? They think I'm trying to steal. So let me put that out into the world. I'm not stealing anything. Keep my hands out. But that constant self, that, 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 that constant eye you have in yourself, it becomes, it can become unhealthy. You know, when you are, it's, you're, you're taking in assumptions, you're taking in projections, you're taking in hatred. People are hating you based on something you cannot control, the end. And that plays into how you see yourself, whether you like it or not. Um, and then the work is to let those things go. But then the other work is to create a world where that is not happening to people. And, but those things become, because those are, those are, you know, everyone's an atlas that's holding the world on their shoulders and whatever's happened to you is just like, ah, you're drowning under it. Your, your knees are buckling. And that's what I think causes um, depression. So um, do you think, I mean, if, if we use your description of depression being pouring over the past, it would seem like there would be more of a propensity for depression and, and more of, I mean, it's for, for black people, it seems like there'd be so much depression that, that it would have to be a culturally accepted thing. And yet it's not. That's absolutely true. And I think that, I think that there's a lot of uh, depression in the black community. I, and this is something, again, I think a lot of people are starting to talk about more because we're looking at, it's almost as if the language for dealing with these feelings was kept away from us. And now, you know, we have it and we're starting to embed it into the community and see how it plays out over and over and over again in all these different ways, whether it be the dynamic of a community at large or the dynamic of a family unit inside that community. Um, or, you know, when all these different people have the same sort of situations and they're all kind of headed the same direction, you know, how do we separate those things? How do we create like, you know, cause I went to art school and there were, I went to a theater school and there, that my class had a lot of black people in it. And by a lot, I mean five, uh -huh. you know, so, and that was more than every other class that was around me. And to me, I always looked at like, well, you know, it's cause people aren't telling black people that you can do this. You know, like that it's okay to go to art school, you know, or go, go study this thing that you want. Barron says he hasn't really been a meds guy to treat his condition, has nothing against them. He's just chosen more of a talk therapy route to try to make sense of all that he's been through and understood and misunderstood. He's still only 36. He says a breakthrough happened in a group session he attended with a therapist who really made a difference. He would, he would bring up like how judgmental we are of ourselves as a kid. Because I see that child and I go like, shut up, sit up straight, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm impatient with who that was, right? Because it's me. And that it allows me to beat myself up and go like, oh, I should have done this and I should have done that and I should have done. And he, this person would say to a person doing that. Now, if there was a completely different, imagine yourself now and imagine all those things happening to a different child. And imagine that child coming to you and telling you these things are happening. What would you say? And 10 times out of 10, every person was like, I would tell that child's going to be okay. I'd say, I'm here for them. I want to hug them. I want to listen to them. Yeah. It's not your fault. And then he would say, now, can you say that for yourself? And people would go like, Ugh, like it's really hard. Mm -hmm. 
It's really hard to just forgive yourself for how you have already been. Again, that comes back to the depression. Either because a lot of it's not you feeling like maybe you didn't do, there's some idea of who you're supposed to be, some way that you should have handled it, some thing you should have said, some spine you should have had. And now you're stuck in punishing yourself for not being who you thought you should have been at a time before you knew who you were. And that's a pretty good idea. Depression is not a moral failing, it's a disease. Oh, if only I had been braver, this ear infection would have never happened. No, nah. -uh. Still, beyond the persistent presence of The Carol Burnett Show among all comedians, I couldn't quite connect the struggles Baron had to the work he does now. So he explained it. I have all those feelings. I have all that shame. I have that darkness. I have that hunched over body apologizing for everything. But I know how to make people laugh. And when I make them laugh, it all goes away. Mm. It goes away from me. I have a, I have a, I'm a different person, but then also perhaps a lot of the times those people who were saying those things, once I've made them laugh, the things that they were saying don't matter to me anymore because then I perceive like, oh, I have power over you. Actually, you can say that stuff to me and you think that you have power over me, but I can make you laugh and you didn't even know that that was going to make you laugh. I've taken complete control. I've disarmed that person. And then so to me, like in a lot of the times, it was the thing that, that helped me. It helped me see that I had power as well, that I could, this person could make me feel bad, but if I made them laugh, you know, then I have power. And sometimes the things that they make me feel bad about um, wouldn't bother me anymore. Cause I'm like, nah, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I made you laugh. So actually, you're saying these mean things, but you actually like me and you don't even know it. I asked Baron what advice he has for people going through what he's been going through. Be patient with yourself. You know, I, I had a friend the other day um, who was looking really rough. She's, she's going through a breakup with someone that she's been with for years. And when we were talking about it, she was expressing this... Um, impatience she has with herself. I should just be able to do this and do that. And I had just read this, this brain study um, that said a breakup, uh, an emotional breakup, romantic breakup, it lights up the exact same parts of your brain that a broken leg lights up. And they brought up this point to say, so give yourself the time to heal. Would you want to rush on a broken leg? No, you need to be able to to have some, you know, to let it heal and then slowly figure out how to walk again. And because, you know, a person perceives that, oh, I haven't had any physical harm happen to me. This is all in my head. Sure, that's true. Um, but you still have to give yourself the time to understand how that's working. And this impatience with ourselves to just get over it and to just shut up and I have a spot like and that's different than dwelling by the way because dwelling in the emotion and oh I deserve this because I've done that that's a very different thing but I also have learned to give myself the time to kind of just feel what I'm feeling so I know that I'm somewhere um I'm like okay all right and then slowly work my way because you know Rome wasn't built in a day as they say and when you find out that you have um depression you basically find out that you're in Rome 
and you're like, oh, I need to change Rome to Paris. That's going to take some time. It's going to be little step-by-step things that you can do, you know, um, and of course, seek the help of a mental health professional, you know, um, because that's what they're for is because my mom said it well, because I had this idea of therapy and I think a lot of do a lot of people do. Um, I don't need someone to fix me is a, you know, I don't need to be fixed. Therapy is not about being fixed. No one's trying to fix you. And the way that my mom said it when I told her I was going to therapy, she said, oh, that's great. I think it's really valuable for you to have someone to help you come up with a strategy for your life. And it was the word strategy that I thought was perfect because a therapist is not trying to fix you as much as they are a coach on your team that has coached other teams and sees what plays will and won't work. Does anybody else like me here spend a lot of your free time Googling hate groups? Nobody else wants to know where not to be in February? Okay. You know, the Klan has a website. Yeah, finally. Finally getting with the times, Klan. I kind of love that they have a website because that means that there was somebody in the world that was like, oh, I hate black people and those who are different than me to such an extent that I'm going to learn Adobe Flash. (laughs) You see, I'm filled with racist bile and I have a master's in graphic design. (laughs) How could I put these two together? (laughs) And my favorite part of the, you know, the website besides the, you know, poetry section was... On the membership page, there was a phrase that caught my attention. It said, the Ku Klux Klan is not an equal opportunity organization. You must meet our requirements 100% to become a member. And I was like, who the fuck doesn't know that? Who is the black guy that keeps showing up to the parties? What's happening, Klan? I just got on my talk like it's 1975 class. You dig solid. Slide me some skin, home skillet. Where the white women at? That was Baron Vaughn off his album Raised by Cable. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Big thanks to Jonathan Blakely. Our theme song is called Pagliacci and was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett at his website, rhettmiller.com. Please listen to lots of Rhett Miller songs because they are great. Confidential help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org, which is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma. It's a way for you to find help either for yourself or for people around you. And you can get information there. You can get tips to start those awkward conversations where you want to reach out to somebody and help, but you don't quite know how. You don't know what's the right thing or the wrong thing to say. Use this resource. It's a place to check out for yourself or for others. Makeitok.org. Find it, use it, make it okay. On the next episode, Paul F. Tompkins is one of the funniest, smartest, most successful, most beloved comedians out there. And you'd think that would be enough. 
I've already I've already lived the dream. I'm I'm at this this point that I wanted to get to where I'm supporting myself doing what I love to do. And like my mother just she couldn't hear that. You know, like at the end of her life, she was asking me, you know, have you figured out what you want to do with the rest of your life? I, I just couldn't make her see. You know, I just could never make her see. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know Hey, make sure to check out TBTL from APM Podcasts. It's these two guys, Luke and Andrew, discussing the news and their insecurities and once in a while, childhood pets. Oops was my mom's bird. I mean, it's just this little dirty monster that you would like kind of let out of the cage and just kind of fly around. And all it would do is eat all my dad's uh, credit cards. And um, and the reason it's named Oops, and this probably had a, a psychological effect on me as well. Like, it didn't really have a name. My mom was trying to train it. And she was taught that you're supposed to say Oops when it shits outside the cage. And so it would shit outside the cage all the time. And she'd say Oops. And then we just started calling the bird Oops. So basically the bird's name was shit. <laughs> like, I did not like this bird really at all. Andrew, this is without a doubt the single most interesting thing about you. (laughs) Okay, we never said they were really interesting people, but they do the show five days a week, and that has to count for something. Volume, after all. Subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts.